Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What was revealed at the National Press Club in Washington on October 19th? What is disclosure? Can we really trust the government to give us the truth about UFOs slash UAPs, the new term? Hello, welcome to the 924th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, coming to you from WOON, AM, and FM radio here in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, on the Paranormal Radio app from uh, TalkStream Live on YouTube and via TuneIn.com. I'm Ben, and those high-flying questions came from my co-host, partner in Paranormal Adventures, and dad, Paul. And today we bring you an old friend with some amazing information. Peter Robbins is one of America's most respected researchers and investigative writers in the UFO field, with nearly 40 years of experience. He has lectured all over America and abroad, and has helped launch and organize some of the most important UFO conferences. He also has his finger on the pulse of the UFO disclosure movement. Peter is a pillar of integrity and honesty in a field that truly needs it. He has actually withdrawn books from the market because new information made him question some of the elements in them. In fact, he is so honest that he corrected us on the promo for this show that we put on Facebook uh, that, that, that he had not participated in the actual press conference, but he was there. I mean, to me, if you're there, that's participating, but whatever. Uh, we respect him for that. Uh, <clears throat> ben and I are honored to call Peter a dear friend and to have him with us today. So, dear friend Peter Robbins, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Thank you, gentlemen. It's a pleasure to be back. And I see here that my lighting people have overlit me over the moment <laughs> while I give them all hell. Uh, yeah, you got, you got to watch out for those the, those gaffers. Indeed. Indeed. You're all fired. <laughs> uh, I think I just upset my cat. Oh, well. Um, you mean your producer. I, that's what I mean. <laughs> well, don't, don't upset cats. They have great influence. Don't we know? And yes. uh, they control the world as far as uh, uh, our lives go, those of us who are slaves to their every whim. Mm, anyway, yes. while I'm putzing around with the lights, yes, it is wonderful to be back. And, gosh, I miss you guys. I'm really hopeful, as you are, that the pandemic is uh, under control enough that, at the least, we get to see each other again uh, this Labor Day weekend. Well... This coming Labor Day weekend, it all seems to be squashed together in time mm. in beautiful and historic Exeter, New Hampshire. Absolutely. Yeah, ba- baby steps, I suppose, huh? So take it away, Beth. Yeah, so Peter, can you give us uh, an overview of the October 19th press conference at the National Press Club? What exactly went down? Sure. Um, my friend and colleague, uh, Robert Salas, who is uh, a former... Uh, United States Air Force officer uh, who resigned his commission, uh, interestingly, as I recall, in 1971, um, more than anything as a protest to the war in Vietnam as it stood at that time, and has gone on to uh, really a a wonderful career and life. And um, we have had the honor, I've had the honor of, of speaking with him at conferences around this country in the UK, in Brazil, I have tremendous admiration and respect for him. Uh, in the field of UFO studies, Bob is best known for having gone very public with his involvement in 1967 in a classic UFO nuclear incident, 
where a truly anomalous UFO, UAP, came in over a highly secured American base um, and um, interacted, shut down the ability to launch nuclear missiles. Uh, not that that's a bad thing necessarily, but um, at the height of the Cold War, and still it is cause for uh, understandable concern on the part of our military. Um, in 2000 and, gosh, maybe 10, Bob organized a event much like the one I attended in October at the National Press Club where he brought together a number of uh, former Air Force officers who were involved in events much like his. Um, and early this year, he announced that he intended to do it again. A GoFundMe effort was put together and in a few months raised the needed funds to bring in the other uh, retired or former officers to Washington, D.C. to cover all expenses, to hire the room at the National Press Club. And um, the event occurred on October 19th. I There was not open to the public, and... I really wanted to be there, and I contacted uh, Robert Salas, and he was kind enough to invite me and a friend that I was going to drive down with. And it was one of those afternoons for me that um, you know will stick in your mind uh, till the moment that you are off this earth or your mind is shut off. (laughs) Um, It should have been what happened in that room that afternoon should have been the lead news story of every single news organization, certainly in the Western world, political affiliations or leanings, absolutely irregardless. It should have been the lead story on every major newspaper in America the next day. But, of course, not only was neither the case, but there is a long, well-documented history of, again, truly anomalous UFOs coming in over American bases. And we now know, certainly during the Cold War, over Soviet bases, where on a number of occasions, more chillingly, they they set the process in motion, whereby if the process was not stopped, missiles would have launched. Um, In no way did they inhibit the stopping of the process, but we have many documented cases here in the States and in the Soviet Union of these intelligences letting us, in quotes, know in no uncertain terms that they can do this. Uh, we can read into it whatever we want. Anyway, um, in a room that had seating for a 100, and had a number of invited guests, there were still plenty of open seats. There was, um, I was impressed to see, uh, a gentleman there from the Pentagon press office who was very respectful, who was in the audience, who introduced himself, and um, was basically there as an observer. The only news organizations that made themselves present And uh, we were all very aware of it because they were very active, not just with our uh, witnesses, interviewing them at length after the really nice lunch 
at the press club that uh, our friend and colleague Stephen Bassett had arranged for not just the witnesses, but all of the guests as well. And I wish that had been recorded. It was quite an amazing conversation that went on over lunch. But CNN and Fox were both there. And bearing in mind that there was no coverage of this event on CNN or Fox that evening or the next evening, um, what they were doing there, and I, I spoke some length with the folks from the CNN team, others spoke with the Fox people, um, both networks were working on documentaries or an episodic documentary, a series for broadcast next year, and I'm guessing next summer, because as you both know, we are coming into 2022, and late June being the 75th anniversary of the Kenneth Arnold sightings, the Roswell crash, and the modern age of UFOs. And you may remember that in 1997, the 50th anniversary, America went a little UFO crazy. Uh, same thing for the UK. I, I was there twice that summer, first on a book tour and then later in the summer to uh, speak at a Bufora conference and, and visit friends. And every network imaginable trotted out every old UFO documentary. Uh, there were new UFO documentaries uh, on TV, again, and television being a, a different animal than it is today. Um, lots of one-off um, glossy print magazines, special products, uh, collectible food products with, um, you know, alien and UFO kind of labeling. It, it was such a barrage that um, I don't have a solid demographic on it, but there's no question in my mind that over the next year, there was not much coverage of the phenomena. It was that people had kind of overdosed from media saturation. Anyway, I'm off on a tangent here, but um, the event at the National Press Club was a two-hour press conference um, with a certain amount of background material uh, using screens, um, part of interviews with like Jesse Marcel Jr., etc., uh, reflections on famous cases involving nukes, and then the testimony of our four witnesses, three in the room, one uh, on remote, on camera, on the screen, um, from home. And they were all quite unforgettable, very compelling, and very moving as well. Okay. <clears throat> what was uh, what was said, essentially, regarding uh, the, the nuclear uh, layer in this, this mystery? Yeah. Um, Three of the um, the speakers, and that started, of course, with Robert Salas himself, who I should say, um, along with his co-author, and that is James Klotz, wrote a remarkably uh, detailed book about the event that occurred in 1967 at uh, Minot um, Air Force Base, um, uh, Minot, North Dakota, I believe it's North Dakota. Um, it's called um, Faded Giant, which is an Air Force term regarding an event like this. His was emblematic. In fact, the one of the other ones happened 
within a, a week, a day, a few days of his event at the same base on a different shift. Um, Robert was the, I the missile officer. I don't have the term in front of me. And on that shift, he was in charge of overseeing um, 10 Minuteman intercontinental nuclear missiles that if an order was given and uh, authenticated, he and his brother officer, because launchers at the time, I don't know how it is now, uh, this is the old analog days, remember, where you have two men seated at a console mm. far enough away from each other that even if you lean, you can't reach the other man. And at the same moment, the more senior of the officers gives the order and each officer turns a key in an ignition, much like you would do in a car or opening a house. It was a key. And if for any reason that other officer hesitated or refused, as one might, um, the commanding officer, or if the commanding officer refused, the other officer was authorized to remove their service weapon, which uh, at the time, a standard issue was a Colt automatic 1911 model uh, 45 caliber handgun and kill the other officer, bring in the next officer in the room to complete the order. That's how serious this normal situation was. And at a certain point, uh, those underground, and I think it's it's 45 or 50 feet underground, uh, at least that's the, the old Atlas silos I visited one some years ago in New Mexico, where you are in another world um, and whatever is going on above you, it doesn't matter whether it's winter or summer, you are in a, a secured facility that temperature is the same year round, etc. And they, listening to the chatter coming from men on the surface, they hear people reporting that a large glowing disc is coming in toward the base and at one point hovering just above the entrance, I don't know, 50, 100 feet off the ground, very close. And it's at that point that then Captain Salas, observing the readouts on all 10 missiles under his command at the time, watches them being shut down with no mechanical failure on the side of uh, their technology, but with the UFO hanging there, all 10 missiles are made inoperable. Uh, and then at a certain point, the missile, the, the craft, the little glowing disc-shaped light goes away. Um, they were debriefed and basically told this didn't happen. You will not talk about this among yourselves or to anybody ever. And you know what happens or can happen if you don't. Um, and after years, um, men decided that they would talk about it. That basic scenario was repeated three times by 
men, at least well in their 70s, maybe early 80s, who it struck me and a number of other individuals were probably rather be someplace else at that time. They were, they weren't being paid. There, this was not some glorious moment for them. Um, they, none of them were working on books. None of them were doing this to become media stars. They simply wanted to be on record, to be blunt, um, while they were still here on earth. And one of the most insidious, passive ways of dealing with witnesses at this level, witnesses whose testimony is uh, very difficult to challenge because of their, their character, their histories, their motivation or lack of motivation in conventional sense, they are simply ignored and allowed to die so that in the event of a congressional investigation or any kind of official inquiry, their testimony is there, but recorded testimony does not have the weight of an individual on the stand, which I uh, resent as a strategy very much. It's a passive strategy, but it kind of stinks. Anyway, the fourth officer, um, Dr. Jacobs, he was in a different category. He was involved in, in filming under highly classified circumstances with the most cutting-edge uh, camera technology at the time, photographing Atlas missiles as the stages separated, moving into the outer reaches of space and, uh, you know, having that footage available to the Air Force and um, whomever needed to see it. And at the time they were working with a new state-of-the-art situation, um, technically, and as they were doing the filming, they were keeping their eyes on the technical aspects and not looking at what the camera was seeing. And as he tells the story, um, which was reprinted in the wonderful press release they gave those of us that were there, but there he is at home uh, talking to us live in Washington and saying, the next day I'm called into my commander's office and asked if myself or any of my team, in so many words, messed around with the film footage. And given the seriousness and uh, the classification level of this kind of activity, uh, of course, nobody would ever do that. And I let him know that that was the case. And I then watched what we had shot the day before in a screening room with my senior officer, two civilians, guys in suits, who um, I, were not identified to me. And what we observed... And at this point in the testimony, um, uh, Paul and Ben, we see a, a simple animation come up to describe what he is telling us. He said, they watch the separation of the stages and everything is going superbly. And the, the whole filming process apparatus is as smooth as it could be. The resolution is absolutely superb. And... Finally, they have literally going through the blackness of space 
a dummy nuclear warhead having separated from the last uh, stage of the, uh, the, the rocket. And it's moving at, I think, 8,000 miles an hour and coming in from um, the upper left is a disc-shaped object, which then traverses in one kind of effortless circling. It circles the warhead, also pacing it perfectly at 8,000 miles per hour, and at four different points, roughly at quarter points, it shoots out a beam, a, a beam of light. We see it in the animation four times, and then he said the... The warhead, the dummy warhead, destabilized and started to roll and then rolls out of frame and then the unknown takes off and that is that. And he was quite flabbergasted, um, was made very clear also that this is something he could never and should never talk about. And ultimately, many years later, he decided based on um, learning that the officer had made a public statement about this, that he would as well. And um, he, uh, Dr. Jacobs, Robert Jacobs, was, um, even though he was not involved in the kind of event the other three men were, his testimony really rounded it out in another way in terms of them and us. Um I have really not been able to stop thinking about this since. And it's something I've thought about for years. It's been quite some years since Robert Hastings' definitive book on this subject, uh, UFOs and Nukes, something that should be in every serious UFO library, came out. And um, I also uh, very strongly um, um, suggest or encourage people to read Robert Salas's and his co-author Jamie Klotz's book, faded giant about the particular event that Bob was involved in that was so life-changing for him in 1967. Also, um, the footage that I sent you guys of the actual press conference is in the public domain. We want it to get out there. So you are welcome, uh, I'm sure with the blessings of, of Robert Salas and all else involved, of putting that on your website and encouraging your viewers and listeners to see it for themselves. I, I think that's a great idea. We can put a talking points page for this show, and, and that's a, a great place to link that. Ben, you've been taking a lot of notes. Do you have a question? Uh, I do, but I don't know if it's relevant anymore. Um, okay. <laughs> well, I, 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 suppose, I suppose it is. Uh, I, I, I want to take a quick step back um, to... You know, you, you had representatives from CNN and, and, and Fox News there, and this is this is some some pretty big stuff, right? This is you, you know, it's it's definitely national security threats, you know, arguably, and it, it's interesting because um, I was I was doing a little a wee bit of research, and there was a Gallup poll that came out um, this past June uh, that essentially it, it detailed a couple different things. Essentially, four in, in ten of, of every American believes in UFOs in, in some way, shape, or form, right? That they, they visit they visit us, you know, for whatever reason, you know, who knows. And roughly about 75% of, of Americans also believe that there's some sort of life that exists somewhere out there, right? So it's, you know, 40% believe they're visiting us normally. 
75% believe at least there's something out there. So this isn't like something that's, that's, you know, it's, it's a big deal, but it, it makes me wonder what the motive is for not, not talking about it. Now, mm. what, what is, what is your opinion on that? I think that's a terribly important question, Ben. Um, and it's one I've been turning over in my mind to one degree or another for more than 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> um, there are alternate reasons we can come up with, um, some of them simply based on common sense, deductive reasoning, critical thinking. Um, one is that the cover-up of the reality of and let's not even say UFOs as much as truly anomalous UFOs. There is no question in my mind and most serious investigators who have some experience um, that the majority of phenomena reported over the decades as unidentified flying objects may be unidentified to the individual but are conventional even in an exotic sense but not necessarily um, advanced technology from parts unknown under intelligent control by intelligences unknown coming and going with impunity for time immemorial. Um, the late, great Stanton T. Friedman, our dear friend and colleague, um, who is so good at summing things up sometimes in uh, very punchy statements, um, if I'm off, it's by a word or two, he said, the question is not, are UFOs, advanced technology, coming and going uh, uh, with impunity under intelligent control? The question is, has one ever been? And the answer to that is yes. And that essentially is the biggest story of the millennium on a certain level. So the cover-up of that simple fact begins here, begins at the least with the administration of Harry S. Truman. And why did they cover it up? Well, um, I think with good cause, trying to do our best for a moment to put ourselves back in the year of 1947, when perhaps in some ways America was the country that we wish it were now. We had helped to make the world safe from fascism for democracy. We were doing something unheard of, something no nation had ever done in the history of warfare, certainly to the degree that we were doing it under our so-called Marshall Plan. We were assisting financially with information, with every kind of help imaginable. The two nations that had been our most mortal enemies rebuild themselves, transition into democracies, and leave fascism behind them. In that effect, we were brilliantly successful, so much so that in quite a number of ways, both of those nations have come to eclipse us uh, in economic terms. But all of a sudden, there is this phenomenon, and I am convinced beyond any reasonable doubt that the people who in the mo know who had the most access to information back then in the summer of 1947 knew they were dealing with advanced technology from parts unknown that wasn't us and likely wasn't even human. And how do you just simply 
Tell the world about that. Tell America about that. Well, you don't. What Truman did was, I think, what I would have done in the years I try to think about what it would be like to be in his position, which is pull the people together who you feel are best qualified to help you wrap your head around this, to brainstorm it, to get a handle on it. And that would not just be people in the military and intelligence community. It would be people with uh, respected credentials in psychology, in economics, in astronomy, and try to come to a conclusion and then act on that conclusion. I can't prove this, but what I think happened was after a period of time, maybe six months, the president pulls together his advisors on this, a dozen of them at least that we know of, and said, what do we do? And I, you know, if it was Truman himself, he might well have gone on radio and said, my fellow Americans, and by extension, citizens of the world, it is my solemn duty to tell you, blah, 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 blah. And can you even imagine how differently our world would have evolved if in early 1948, say, the cat was out of the bag? There were other intelligences that were coming and visiting us. There were such things as crashed flying saucers, at least one of them, um, and how differently the world would have evolved. Again, Ben, long answer to your short question, but we didn't do that. My intuition is that the, the advisors said, no, we have to keep studying this. We can't panic the people. We really, you know, we'll look out of control, which we are. We will look like we don't know what we're doing, which we don't. So let's just keep studying it. And in that decision to keep studying it and keep that advisorship going began, that was the piece of sand inside the oyster that started to get calcified. And that is the beginning of our post-war national security state. Now, of course, you know, we, we live in a world of national security states in the first national security state. And that core secret that it began with of the millions and tens of millions of little secrets, big and small, that are classified going back probably to at least the Lincoln administration because of the excuse of, well, it would embarrass some families of people who were involved, blah, 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 that that little piece of sand that started the irritant that had to be covered up, more and more layers on the pearl there, that is the core of our national security state was not our nuclear weapons development program. That was, of course, a major uh, top secret operation, but the core of the secret keeping that began this crazy world we live in now was secrecy about this phenomena and the knowledge that we had that it is real and how we had to do everything possible in the minds of the controllers, the people who have always moved around the chess pieces, that we can't talk about it. The other thing, and it's a really simple thing, Ben, is we it's been many decades since we could have since a president of the United States on his own, in this case, could have gone forward and said, it's my solemn duty, blah, 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 and set this thing in motion. Truman could have. Eisenhower was the last one, I think, who could have. After that, I don't think they had a chance. But 
let's remember that whatever the party affiliation, whatever the political leaning, the ex-presidents club, since Harry Truman, including Truman, dead or alive in terms of uh, families and um, influential friends, is a very sensitive little group that is not nearly concerned after the fact with politics as much as their place in history. And let's say our past president, Trump, our current president, Biden, our next president, whomever, were to dare to do something like this, what they would be saying unspoken is that every single president, since and including Harry S. Truman, is an unindicted co-conspirator in the greatest cover-up in the history of humanity. I don't think that they're going to be allowed to do that. And that's just one aspect of it. The possibility of mass panic, at least on the part of some people, the possibility of um, a stock market crash, the possibility of chaos in the petrochemical industry. We know, we know we're dealing with power sources that go beyond our imaginations on some level, but if they were to become available or even to be known as real, what would that do to the stabilization of where we stand right now as the most enlightened powerful minds try to figure out ways to transition over the next few decades from fossil fuels to non-polluting power sources. Those are just a few of the reasons, I think, that we're in this limbo that we've been in for such a long time. Okay, well, with those cheery thoughts, let's take our break. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 AM, 99.5 FM in, in New England's beautiful Blackstone. Blackstone River Valley, <clears throat> excuse me, and our great guest today, Peter Robbins. We'll be right back with some questions from listeners. Stay with us. The night is alive. Join us and take a walk on the weird side when you tune in to the Kingdom of Nye, hosted by Heather Wade, the finest in late night talk. Listen live free weeknights starting at 9 p.m. Pacific time at thekingdomofnigh.com, talkstreamlive.com, and the Paranormal Radio app. Want to take a ride? OM Radio. And welcome back to WON Radio and Behind the Paranormal. So, let's, um, before we get to questions from listeners, um, Peter, I mean, can you believe it's been almost 12 years since we did our Rendlesham, series, Rendlesham Forest series, Return to Rendlesham in 2010-2011, and uh, Ben, a young tyke at the time, was... Uh, was I still this? had hair. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> we had a, a large panel, including yourself, uh, the major Rendlesham Forest witnesses from the Air Force uh, uh, 1980 in England, a bizarre phenomena, England's, uh, Britain's Roswell, really. Nick Pope, uh, people of that stature. And I asked a question about the, and there was a nuclear factor to that case as well. There were, over the weapon storage area, there was, uh, uh craft, there were craft seen, beams of light coming out, etc. And I asked a question about the, uh, not only, not only the, uh, the, uh, uh, effect on the weapons, uh, as far as, uh, whether they would work or not, but also on the, the alleged retargeting 
of weapons that sometimes would occur. And I have never received, we had Colonel Halt on that call. I've never received an answer to that. And, yes. um, as, and you mentioned that, that the missiles were, were the, the process was begun for launch in some cases. Other cases, missiles were deactivated. Are you, uh, where, where would they, in cases of retargeting, and we talked to J, David Jacobs about this too, what do you know about that? Where were they retargeted to, and when did that occur? I have no idea. Um, yeah, the fact is, is, you can't get an answer to that question, I know. N- no, I, I don't, and um, I'm, I'm in, in the dark about it, as you guys are. Uh, any source that I would have for it, I would really, unless it were Charles Halt himself at the time, Effectively, the base commander, but in reality, the uh, deputy base, the deputy base commander. Um, anybody but him, I would really have to question their source. Yeah, uh, I don't know. We don't know. But yes, most certainly, the very famous Rendlesham Forest case, Great Britain's best-known UFO incident, also involved nuclear weapons and certain questions about which have yet to be answered. Yeah. Well, uh, let's hope they weren't retargeted toward uh, one socket, Rhode Island, where we broadcast <laughs> from here. Uh, but Ben, uh, we have, we have two, qu- we have questions from uh, two of our occasional co-hosts, uh, one of whom Peter Shelley in uh, Bogota, Colombia, and Ben, take it away. Sure thing. So Peter writes to us, uh, one, alternative, uh, one alternative theory that occurs to me is that, yes, there is a, there, are, there was a missile uh, shutdown, but not caused by UFOs. Instead, it may have actually been a remote human test of a failsafe system. Logically, the government would have uh, the need to remotely override the missiles to prevent unauthorized launches, uh, testing such an ability... Uh, would be done without informing the missile crew. Uh, the need to have the, this ability would have been highlighted not only uh, by the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, but a number of early 60s novels and movies about ac- accidental uh, nuclear war, and also in the 80s, if you think of war games. Um, Captain Solace and the other uh, silo officers testifying were already underground and not seeing any UFOs themselves. They were in radio contact with topside guards who were claiming uh, of seeing UFOs. The topside portion could easily have been a cover. In this scenario, Solace uh, would be telling the truth as he understood it, uh, not being been informed of a test. No, I'm not ruling out UFOs, absolutely, but only suggesting this as an alternative. Hmm. Well, um, an interesting suggestion, and it would not surprise me um, to learn that there have been tests uh, with the idea that uh, that Peter is talking about here, but in the case that we're referring to here, the other two officers' testimony uh, in October, and the long history, very well documented history, um, in um, the book UFOs and Nukes by Robert Hastings, we are dealing with also credible multiple testimony of the individuals who were topside and who um, Robert Salas himself spoke with the next day, who were truly emotionally shaken by what they had observed, um, to suggest that in each one of these cases, which also involved unexplained anomalous lights, disc-shaped lights coming in over the bases themselves each time 
we have this kind of shutdown, um, again, I appreciate the point being made, but it's really grabbing at straws in terms of the specifics of what we absolutely know about the events uh, we're discussing here. Okay. And we have a question from uh, our dear friend uh, Steve LaPlume, who is occasional co-host here and also was present at RAF Bentwaters during the Rendlesham case. Uh, right up there, Ben. Sure thing. Okay. Okie dokie. And uh, our, our good friend Steve Plume writes, um, if there, if those of us that, that got sideways uh, with the military over UFOs get to be reinstated, is it possible they can be reinstated? I feel like they, they lied to us uh, at our expense, uh, and I, I actually wanted a career in the USAF. Hmm. Well, first, let me say, hi, Steve. Um, I'm, I'm glad you're here, even though I can't see you. Uh, Steve's account and Steve's in person for me is not just one of the most credible I've ever heard, but he's a man of extraordinary character and honesty who pulls no punches. I've known him. Mm-hmm. He's known me for years. And uh, I would take his word on pretty much anything. Um, yes, as far as I know, Steve, from what you know about me and what I've learned about Rendlesham and associated military UFO events, you guys are disposable on a certain level. It's you're the least of it. The most important thing is to keep the lid on it, or certainly has been up until now. And if this you know, ruins your life, sorry, but you're not, your happiness and peace of mind doesn't mean anything compared to the security of keeping these secrets. You know, people talk about this as a national security matter. I much prefer the wording national insecurity. (laughs) And it's them, those secret keepers themselves, those who want to maintain that old status quo which is now crumbling slowly in a very healthy way of its swamp gas, it's um, an air inversion, it's war jitters, it's mass psychology, you know, uh, mass hallucinations. This is all nonsense. It is what it is. And again, not all, but some, as Steve knows better than most people, UFOs, are not explainable in conventional terms. And Steve, I hope you're doing well, and we'll be in touch. Very good. Thank you for your question. Okay. Uh, I think we have time for one more sort of major issue here. Sure. Um, Peter, one cannot help but notice the irony of the coverage that the Pentagon quote-unquote revelations (laughs) earlier this year received about UFOs and the lack of coverage of what we're talking about today in this press conference in October. What's that about? Can you comment? Why was one covered and the other not? Yeah. Um, The report that uh, had such a big lead-up that came out uh, of the Pentagon in June in an abridged, uh, redacted version for us civilians, in a complete version for elected officials, uh, Pentagon people, um, I'm sure people within the military-industrial complex and around the world on a need-to-know basis, 
was, in effect, much ado about not much for those of us who are knowledgeable and studied in this subject. It basically told us everything that they've been telling us for decades. Exactly. Yeah. With one slight addition, um, in 1947, it was, it could be the Russians, you know, it could be us testing top secret information that we in this office do not know about. It could be um, uh, a mass hallucination based on concerns about the coming, what we'll call, what came to be called the Cold War. Um, and, you know, ha-ha, you know, of what, it, what of course it couldn't be is little green men from Mars and, you know, flying saucers. What we're getting now is it could be the Russians. It could be the Chinese. It could be us outside of this office of naval intelligence that we are not clear to know about. Or who knows? It could be just possibly some sign of, you know, that possibility of life from out there, another world, another galaxy, another dimension. It's all being stage managed. They know better than we do all the possibilities and all the realities that are going on. What even if it were pulling teeth, the one thing we would not be able to, we won't be seeing. And there may be many reports coming at us over the next years. They will probably try to slow this process down as much as they can. What we will not see is anything remotely exotic. Nothing about UFOs and nukes. Nothing about crashed UFOs. Nothing about the reality of UFO-related abductions of human beings, of hybrids, of things that are real but terribly troubling and which our government is never going to admit to. So what we're in the process of seeing, I think, is the beginning of a managed soap opera to look like we're revealing things, uh, maybe a little bit more each time, and that we're as surprised as you are, folks, by what we're learning here with what's coming up, you know, through uh, the Navy tic-tac photos and courageous researchers who are bringing things to our attention. It's a show. And we're the audience. Well, we have, um, I don't know, I wish we had more time here, but why was, why is it always the Navy that seems to be at the center of this, this thing, as opposed to the Air Force? You think the Air Force, these are flying things, usually, but they're underwater. I don't know. What, what say you? <laughs> well, um, when Harry Truman um, decided that he wanted the War Department which had been a department of the American government since the since the revolution, uh, when he wanted it dismantled and replaced with a new entity to be called the Department of Defense. Number one, the Air Force didn't exist. Number two, the man, not a committee, the man he chose to oversee the dismantling of this old department, which I, even as a kid, thought had a very honest name, you know, there's no ambiguity about calling a department the War Department or <laughs> as opposed to Department of Defense um, and create this new entity. It was the then most recent uh, Secretary of the Navy, James Vincent Forrestal. Hmm. And Forrestal, um, who went on um, in, in September of 1947 to become our first, very first Secretary of Defense, Full acclamation. Everyone in the House and the Senate agreed with the president. This was the man for it. Um, he asked the Army and the Navy for plans to help draw up and oversee the structure of how this new Department of Defense was going to be put together. And he chose the Navy's plan. So in a sense, the Navy has be been at the center 
of this kind of strategic thinking since before the beginning of the actual advent of the Defense Department, and it was not until late September of 1947 that the United States Air Force was activated. So the Air Force got stuck with, you know, overseeing the thing officially and Project Blue Book, I think, because they're called the Air Force, and we're not thrilled about it. Um, In 1968, of course, they officially declared themselves out of the UFO business and the dismantling of Project Blue Book. Of course, we know that was also for show. They never got out, and Blue Book was, at best, uh, a public relations venture and a file-keeping aspect. But the Navy remains at the core of the secret-keeping and as knowledgeable a branch in the services, if not more, than the others. Okay. And uh, a few more minutes. Uh, Peter Shelley would like to know if the Pentagon representative at the press conference in October said anything. I, I'm sorry. The, the, uh, the, 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 the Pentagon representative oh. uh, from the press office, did yes. he speak at all or, or she uh, at the press conference? Um, only um, it was a he and only to identify himself as a representative of the uh, press wing of the Pentagon, okay. who was there as an observer and a listener. To the best of my knowledge, uh, we haven't heard anything from that individual uh, in, in specific or the Pentagon in general uh, about the press conference. And I that couldn't surprise me less. Okay. Now, Peter, take a moment. Tell people uh, where people can find out more about yourself, your books, etc. Um, right now, uh, you can follow me on Twitter. That's at Peter Robbins UFO. Um, become a friend of mine on Facebook, and believe it or not, there are several Peter Robbinses in the universe. <laughs> and I am the one listed in Ithaca, New York, although I'm just outside of Ithaca. Um, more to the point. Join me on Monday nights, 7 to 9, on uh, KGRA Digital Broadcasting. Uh, that would be KGRADB.com. Um, and again, that's 7 to 9 Eastern Standard Time when I do a live two-hour broadcast every week under the name of Meanwhile, Here on Earth. Um, and... I'm very proud of the way the show is going. It's almost a year now since I have joined you two gentlemen in the world of broadcasting. And my shows vary back and forth between um, panel discussions and mostly in-depth autobiographical conversation interviews with some of the leading upcoming and newer uh, personalities in the world of UFO studies, paranormal but also in filmmaking, in the arts, and other related and unrelated subjects. Um, those broadcasts are also all available on Spreaker, S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R, dot com, at no cost, but only in audio. And we do tend to show a lot of images. Also, the first 35 or so shows are forever embedded on um, in YouTube and uh, you can subscribe to KGRA if you want to, but in any case, I hope you'll be joining me on Mondays. That's a, t- a terrific show. When I say that not just because Ben and I have been on it, but because Peter just does a great job. Oh, yeah. And terrific guests. 
And uh, I look forward to being on it again soon. We, we're talking about that. Yes. And uh, Peter also has honored us with the uh, the offer to to write uh, the forward for our forthcoming book, uh, Behind the Paranormal Three, uh, Uneasy Skies. If we ever finish the darn thing, so that's uh, a work in progress. <laughs> hopefully, yeah, work in progress. Uh, hopefully next year. So, Peter, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, terrific discussion, and uh, only just getting started, I think, on this subject. So, uh, let's get to our announcements. Yes, we if always you would, have. Please, Mr. Ben. And we have a plethora, of course. Uh, so we are all set with our uh, public events for this year, and the year is quickly wrapping up in a couple of weeks, actually. Uh, but we look forward to the Supernatural Bowl. Uh, that's a debate on February 4th at the Pine Bush UFO and Paranormal Museum in Pine Bush, New York. Uh, and to the New England Parafest uh, in Kittery, Maine, which runs from April 10th to the 26th. That's in 2022. And we'll provide more information as uh, those dates approach. After years of technical problems, all the regular uh, recorded shows from um, Behind the Paranormal, from CBS Radio, Achieve Radio, and here on W01AM and FM, including the, the uh, CBS special that we did, that we mentioned earlier 12 years ago with Peter and uh, uh, many other uh, luminaries in the field about the Rendlesham case. That's all available at BehindTheParanormal.com. Uh, also fully restored are, are, are those, and uh, also uh, YouTube and Apple Podcasts, iTunes, etc., and many, many uh, platforms have our shows. Uh, at least going back a few years anyway. Mm. Uh, but all of them over a thousand hours are at uh, BehindTheParanormal.com. <clears throat> Our show has its own app, uh, believe it or not. It's uh, very simple, but it's free. I mean, what do you want for nothing, right? Um, right now, it just has uh, some of our most recent past shows. Uh, you, It's not in the Google and Apple Store. I mean, we're having trouble getting it in there. Um, I really haven't had time to work on it. But there's a link at BehindTheParanormal.com on the main page if you'd like to just download it, and it'll do the same thing. So, And you can also check out our books, along with those of our guest co-hosts at our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can also find out more about the show, our many cases over the years, our public appearances, and how to book us, as well as my dad said, our 900-plus free recorded shows, uh, as now restored, as my dad mentioned. And uh, we have to mention, of course, the terrible tragedy in the south, uh, southern United States mm. over the last few days, uh, the, the tornadoes, the terrible loss of life. Uh, you know, our, our love and prayers go out to, to them. And also, what's really needed is our blood donations, mm. okay? Those are low, so we encourage you to uh, donate to your local blood bank, American Red Cross, and I think that is probably the best way immediately mm-hmm. uh, to send some help to those to those poor folks. Indeed. So, uh, what do we have next week, Ben? So, uh, next week, December 19th, uh, we have Josh Rutledge. And Stefan Gerhardt, uh, here, they, they will be here to give us a tour of the weird paranormal world of Kentucky and beyond. And we leave you today with a quote from our old friend, the late, great Stanton T. Friedman, mm. from his foreword to our 2016 book, quote, Truth is derived by a combination of investigation and imagination, unquote. Mm, I'm Paul. Full of, full of wisdom, Stan. Absolutely. We miss him a lot. Indeed. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time on Behind the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.